is Jerry DiPiano, and you are listening and possibly viewing the Love Mia Vita podcast. My guest today is Anne Marie McQueen, who is CEO of Hot Flash Incorporated. And Anne Marie came to this um, as a professional journalist with more than two decades of experience in uh, the world of journalism writing for significant publications and doing a whole host of interesting things that bring information into our universe, both in an auditory fashion and also in written communication. So I'd like Anne-Marie to share a little bit about her background because she does have quite a stellar background and uh, we can dive into what is Hot Flash Incorporated. It seems uh, self-intuitive, but, um, but I'd like to know more about the journey. So Anne-Marie, please share with us some of your background. Oh, hi. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, my background. Okay. Well, I always wanted to be a journalist and I uh, I got a poli-sci degree, but then when I went into journalism, I decided to do broadcasting because I thought maybe I won't do broadcasting because I love writing, but I'll just get those skills. And I'm really, really glad that I did that. I never became a full-time broadcaster. Um, and I always, I freelanced in it. I did radio and TV on the side and I loved writing and I'm working for newspapers, but along the way, like those skills, as we know, video and um, podcasts are so important in social media, everything. So it's just sort of funny that I took that route, like all those years ago, just thinking that'll make me more well-rounded. And I'm just super glad because I feel like today, all the different avenues you do, you have to make content. Like I just sort of have been preparing for it, even though I didn't know I was. And people always tell you, you have to, you have to focus. You have to, like, this was my advice when I was young, you know, you have to pick one thing, you have to pick one thing. And I was never a person who wanted to pick one thing. And so now it just feels like, aha, I'm at the place where I can do this, you know? But um, I did sort of always dip in out of health journalism. My mom was a nurse and my mom died really young. She was not well. Um, she died at, at 53 um, and I was 27. And I just was always very interested in the mind-body connection. She just had like a range of health problems as I remember her growing up. And it's only been as I've gotten older that I realized that this is sort of what pushed me to cover health in the way that I did. So I would cover the healthcare industry I also would cover like holistic health and I would cover the latest diseases. And in between that, I covered city hall and I covered crime and I covered the Supreme court and I covered entertainment and I wrote about my dating life. I did all that stuff in Canada, uh, transgender. I wrote about tr the transgender issue in 2006 and 2007, which is, you know, a long time ago. Um, and then I decided to move to the middle East because I heard this newspaper, was opening in 2008. And this, the, the Crown Prince in Abu Dhabi was opening uh, an English newspaper, might end up being, I think it's the last you know newspaper launch ever because newspapers are on the decline. And I was at such a great point in my career. I'd moved, I was in the nation's capital. I was a national trends writer. I was a senior columnist. It was a really good time in my career but I'd always wanted to live overseas and I hadn't really known or thought about it. And I always had this sort of call. So I did it. I, I sold everything and I packed up and I moved overseas and it's one of the best things I ever did. So then I came here, we worked on the launch of that newspaper, gravitated from the news desk over to arts and life, again, covering health and wellness. And then, um, 
that paper was sold in 2018, uh, 2017, and I lost my job. And I was the features editor at that point. And I'm so glad I lost my job because I had sort of golden handcuffs. <laughs> and I just was like, knowing I wanted something else, but just couldn't leave that salary and couldn't imagine what I wanted to do. Around that time, I had realized I was in perimenopause. So I realized I was in perimenopause around like, you know, 46, 47, but I had been in it since 40 and I had been to the, a doctor and naturopath and trying to figure out what was going on with me. No one ever said perimenopause. I think I had some denial going on because obviously I had heard of it. I remember I had a university professor who was in menopause. I'd heard of it, you know, like I, I knew, I knew it existed. But when I realized I was in perimenopause, I just put a Google alert. I started gathering information because I'm like, okay, I'll just tackle this like I tackle everything else. I'll just get all the information and make a great plan for myself. And it felt like a relief to know what was going on. But the information was just terrible. Like I just hated it. I hated everything I got. It was either fear mongering, really, really sort of nasty articles in the daily mail type stuff. You know, you're losing, you're losing this, you're losing that. I hated all the, the jokes and the comedy. Like they were just, it's not funny to me to make fun of your sagging boobs and your chin hairs. Like, I just don't think that I, I love laughing, but I don't think that stuff's funny. I think it's entertainment. Um, just really poor quality, just like stuff, obviously like someone had done to, for SEO without any thought or context. And I'm such a content person. Like I'm obsessed with just doing like just great content and researching and talking to as many people as I can and making things as big and exciting as I can. So I started thinking, could I do this? Like, is there, if I'm here and I want something like this and I can't find it, it doesn't seem to be out there. Like, could I start it? So I started thinking about a newsletter and, you know, in the pandemic, I launched the newsletter because by then I was, had a pretty really kicking freelance career going, but uh, a few of those contracts were canceled as many things were at the beginning of the pandemic. I had everything in place and I was like, if I don't launch it now, I won't ever do it. So thank goodness for the pandemic. And within short order, I had you know, I started out with like 200 people, but within short order, I had some pretty pro high profile people who had, who had noticed like, and I was just doing the newsletter, um, like Alicia Jackson, the CEO of Evernow was one of the first people to write to me, say, I love what you're doing. I love your tone. Like we'd worked together a little bit and I thought, okay, I think I'm on to something, you know, but it's taken a long time to figure out just what it might be, how I can make money from it. Cause I have to make money to keep doing it. So, um, that's how I got here, you know, and I have a podcast too, because so a company become came to me and said, we would sponsor your podcast if you had one. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't know if that's the way a podcast gets started, but I, again, I think I'm on the right track. So yeah, I've, and along the way, I found a really great community of women who want to go deeper, who don't want to reduce this to a one note, um, get a prescription to fix this and you'll just you know, uh, women who understand this is a mind, body, soul, emotional, physical transition, and that it's a point in our lives where we can sort of go one way or the other. And that's, yeah, that's whatever. That's where I'm at. <laughs> well, I love the fact that you're living boldly, that you made the bold decision to make that move. And you, and, you know, you have a vibrant career and you've pivoted several times. Sounds like you, you, you've always pivoted in your career. So the fact that you were interested in broadcast journalism and, and tried that on and didn't, and, and thought that there might be something more there and continue to pivot throughout your career has really set you up 
appropriately for the role that you have now, which is to broadly communicate using a variety of different platforms to share content and fearlessness. I That's what comes across when, when you share what you've done. The fact that you, you were in perimenopause and you didn't want to be stigmatized. And I think that's probably true of most of us who, um, whether we are in perimenopause or menopause or postmenopausal, the name menopause, even the even the use of the word pause is really distressing to, to, to yeah. me. I'm not pausing. I mean, my life has been going on. Probably most of us that um, have been through the transition, I love using the word transition, although yeah. transitioning to what? You know, it's transitioning to something much better you know, you're not worried about the same issues. So if you were someone that was concerned about um, pregnancy because you had completed your family, then this is a time of liberation because now that's, you know, that part of your life has been complete. And if you're not interested in having children, then that's okay too, because your your life is complete and you don't have to worry about preventing pregnancy. Um, and some of the consequences of um, the menstrual cycle that may be unpleasant for some women. Um, so so those are some liberating things, right? Um, you know, we talk about what's the, some of the changes that are happening in our bodies and we can fearlessly take control of some of that. And we don't have to load our bodies with hormones. We joked about this in our last, when you and I chatted previously, women um, using hormones from cradle to grave. And it's it's not necessary with um, when you enter menopause, but somebody needs to communicate that because not everyone grew up um, doing healthcare journalism as you did or developing products or working in the pharmaceutical industry as I did. And so we need, we need that information. So Tell me, tell our audience about your approach to how to disseminate this information. What's what's important when you're communicating to women? I just want people to know that there are, we're a bottom line and we're the best bottom line if we take an intervention for the rest of our lives. And I'm hearing this more and more and more about every single form of HRT. You could, you should be on this for the rest of your life. This is it's safe for the rest of your life. When I don't think that we have all that information. And when I know this messaging is coming from high level meetings and highly paid PR departments that are sending press releases that are then disseminated, sending press releases with doctors that they've hired to say things who are then quoted and not connected to the people who are paying them. These things are all very, very, very important. And they happen in a lot of ways. And that's, that's how I approach it. I'm also very much into promoting that this is like a hero's journey. This is like a spiritual soul journey and the reduction of it to take hormone therapy and you'll be fixed. You know, hormone therapy is not going to fix your marriage that needs attention. It's not going to fix your tendency to always say yes to things and develop resentment. It's not going to say, it's not going to fix a lot of what's going on that needs to be dealt with at this time. You know, I've, I've, I've dealt with so many resentments and blame I held for things and fear and hormone therapy wouldn't help me with any of that stuff. You know, like, it's just, I don't think it does that. 
And so, yeah, so I'm, I want people to be very aware of what's going on and how, how the pharmaceutical industries work and not to just accept that something is perfectly safe if just because some people say it on social media. I'm very concerned about, you know, like I call them doctor menopause gurus, these doctors that have got massive followings now. And I'm very concerned about people on social media only following them and just listening to everything they say, because there is this phenomenon that happens when you have a, it's when you have a following say on Instagram or in social media audience capture, where you just start giving the audience exactly what they want, because that builds your audience. You get more followers. And that's, I don't think that's what doctors should be doing. So anyway, all of these things, right? That's what I do. <laughs> so, it sounds, so it sounds like investigative journalism. So when we peel back the data that, so sometimes we read you know, an article, whether it's published on social media, could be on LinkedIn, it could be um, in, you know, in the New York Times or some other credible publication. It's always important to dissect that information. Uh, there was an article that came out a number of years ago, and it was about um, birth control causing a, a brain cancer. It was such a rare form of brain cancer. It was a retrospective study, which is really a look back at the data. So you don't really know if there are confounding factors. So what I hear you saying is that you're the person that's going to bring that information to the fore, like pay attention to the details. What's behind it? Who's behind it? How mm -hmm. was it supported? Was it supported mm -hmm. by a large institution? Is that institution credible? Does that institution mm -hmm. sell products in that category? So if they do, then perhaps one would tend to look at that with a bit of a hairy eyeball and, <laughs> yeah. you know, how was this, how was it supported? It's, it's the way we look at clinical studies here at, at um, Fem Pharma, uh, which is the company that um, that I'm CEO of, and uh, we again are the sponsors of the Love Me Evita podcast. We believe in fair balance, right? And fair balance means that you have to share the information in a way that allows the person that's either listening or reading to understand that there are two sides to this story, right? There's a pro, the pro con to put it very basically. And if we all spent more time thinking about that, it, it helps to be more credible. It, mm -hmm. it helps you as a journalist, right? And that's what you do. And for those of us that are producing products, drugs, over-the-counter products as, as Fem Pharma Consumer Healthcare, it also helps us to establish that we can be trusted because it's not one size fits all. In menopause, we know it's not one size fits all. So if if hormone replacement therapy is something that you think can be helpful to you, and you have discussed this with your healthcare practitioner, and you feel confident that this is a must have for you, then that's your choice. That's the that's the beauty of being at, in this age group cohort. We get to make decisions about what we want. But if it's not your deal then there are different ways to address your symptoms. And, and what I'm hearing from you is you're the one that is working to disseminate this information in a highly credible, unbiased way. And that, that's so important. We, you know, we often hear um, that when you communicate to the lay public, and I, I'll say this um, includes both men and women, right? We want to dumb things down. And I hate that. What 
Tell us about the way you believe information ought to be shared with your audience. Well, I think the dumbing down that happens now is we're not including alternate voices very often. You know, in news stories, you're not seeing alternate voices or you're seeing the alternate voice. You know, let's let's talk about a, a story I read in the British press that was tracing the the um, supply chain for hormone therapy. And I thought this is going to be an amazing article. This is an amazing paper. And this is going to give me tons of information I don't have. And it was not a good article. It was very much um, an article that was like pushing hormone therapy as a solution. And in it, it mentioned bioidentical hormone therapy. And instead of speaking to, um, you know, an alliance or an organization for, for compounding or bioidentical hormone therapy, it just spoke to someone from a drug company to say, don't use <laughs> bioidentical hormones. And this is an example of just like really poor journalism, right? This is not like, th that's not how you do it. And this is in one of the best papers. So I'm just going to, you know, I had two people, I had the representative from the, um, Alliance for Compounding Pharmacies on my podcast and a compounding pharmacist. And it was so eye-opening to what you hear, to what the narrative is it about it, to what it actually is. I mean, I still have people saying, but compounding pharmacies are dangerous and unregulated. And I'm like, but they're not dangerous and unregulated. They're, they're highly regulated. Wherever you have them, they're highly regulated. The individual doses that they put out are not regulated, but how could they be? Because they're tailored to each customer. So just, I try a lot and I do a lot of repeating about these things because I think it's important. And it's not that I'm advocating for bioidentical hormones or compounding therapy. It's that it drives me nuts when people just repeat things that they've heard. It's damaging because if a woman is on hormone therapy and it's not working out for her, a commercial preparation, her provider may say, um, well, we might, we could try a compounding pharmacy, but if she's been watching social media and all you hear is compounding pharmacies are just a way to take your money and they're just a scam, like that's going to be a really difficult leap when she might actually be able to, um, when she might actually be able to benefit from it. So I really am, I I'm always trying to puncture and break down narratives. That's my thing because we, we live in a society of narratives because people just repeat and repeat and repeat things. And so that's one way. And in terms of dumbing it down, it's true. Someone who's 12 should be able to understand what you write, like using giant words when you can find other words. It's, you know, you know, when you're talking to someone and they're just using a lot of words and they just sound sort of like a jerk, like they just sound like someone who's trying to impress you. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think you can write intelligently and also right so that it's understood for everyone that's the goal you don't want anyone coming away from what you write like scratching their head you know and a lot of times when that happens it's not dumbing it down it's that the person who wrote it doesn't really understand what they're talking about that would have when I I became a much better writer than when I became an editor and I was dealing with copy from reporters and I'd be like sit down and tell me exactly what you're trying to say here because I don't think you understand it so, you know, and this is hard because I was not a strong science student. And although I love learning about all things to do with science now, it's like, I still have that voice in my head. That's like, you don't have the background for this. Like you don't have the background for this, but I didn't have the background to write about permafrost or a complex financial uh, court cases. And I did that as well. I didn't have the background to write about a massive city hall budget, but I, I figured it out. And I think I think there is a benefit from someone not being in the industry not and not having that background because you can ask the questions that the average person would ask, right?
which are yeah. often awesome common sense questions that people inside will be like sort of annoyed at, but it's like, Hey, so that's what I tell myself when I'm having imposter syndrome. <laughs> you know, it's funny the, um, that you say that I was, I would always get asked questions by friends of mine who weren't in the industry, who had never made a drug or had never, you know, done anything in medicine or the clinic or what have you. And I used to refer to myself as their nerdy girlfriend. And that's yeah. really, and the nerdy girlfriend is somebody who can translate, right? And make this and, and help to illustrate what it is that really is going on behind the scenes. So I think that, you know, that is super important. You don't need to use what came out of your Goodman and Gilman's pharmacological basis of therapeutics, right? To help somebody understand that if you, you know, if you're administering a drug by mouth or using a patch, that it gets into your bloodstream, right? Yeah. Yeah. I could say you get uptake into systemic circulation. So nobody's going to understand what that is. Somebody scientists will understand it. But for my friend, says, well, wait a minute, you know, I had all these crazy side effects going on because I took this antidepressant and like, okay, well, that's because it, you know, it's, this is how it's working. That's not dumbing it down. That's translating. So the, the, the nerdy girlfriend part of me is where I see being beneficial. And it sounds like that is you. I mean, you are, you are nerdy. You're the nerdy girl. You're the nerdy yeah. girlfriend. You, you yeah. know, you're a scientist, but you understand what's going on and you can break down the barriers. And with perimenopause and menopause, you know, we often hear either really garbage, right? So there's a lot of garbage and junk, what I'll call junk content that's mm -hmm. in the public domain, or it's at a level that really is what I just said, just if you're a clinician or if you're a scientist, then you can possibly break down that information. But for the average woman and man, because uh, men are curious about what's going on with their partners, um, you really do need to be able to communicate that in a way that is understandable without being insulting. And it has to be, the information has to be high quality. So. When you look at information, I think you you just shared this, that you're looking at who's supporting this. How is it mm -hmm. being promoted? Is it being promoted elsewhere? Is there a vested interest? Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I see studies in the menopause sphere, and I feel like there are studies that have been designed to show that something damaging isn't damaging in this regard. Like that sometimes I feel, you know, everyone's, talks about the gold standard of the, you know, uh, clinical trial, the, the randomized placebo controlled clinical trial, but I don't think people understand that these things can be rigged as well and that they're funded often by companies. And, and I just, you know, I'll just ask questions about certain studies and I'll be like, why, like, why was that study done? Like here, this, here's a study. Here's why it was done. I have my eye on one right now that I'm about to ask to see the actual, because I don't have a memberships to all of these journals. So to talk about them in depth, I need to see the study and I'm still learning how to parse all this too. You know what I mean? Like this is not, this was not my wheelhouse and I, I didn't get that too deep into it um, up until I started doing this menopause stuff. But um, I think it's very important 
for someone to be asking questions. Like no one's querying any of this stuff. And one of the, you know, just a small example on a funding front, there was a, a GP in Scotland who wrote a piece in the British Medical Journal recently that pointed out that the in Britain, the all-party parliamentary committee on menopause was funded by two uh, drug companies, Estellas Pharma and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Well, you just wouldn't know that from any of the reporting. And if you, if you ever wondered, as I have, why the British menopause revolution that is so great is so heavily focused on hormone therapy, well, the fact that that committee and its report that it produced, right at the bottom it says, is funded by these two drug companies, there's your answer. But not one journalism, not one journalist in Britain asked that question or in any of their reporting, which was very breathless and activist. I said that. And I think that's so important. Like that's a norm, a question in journalism, like who's paying for this? So, so the public's left to believe that the, the British government is benevolent in creating this menopause committee when actually the whole thing is funded by pharma. So um, if no one's asking those, you know, that's a, that's a doctor that happens to be a journalist that happens to ask questions like I do, but there's not very many of us when people are just taking information and not querying it. You know, the Washington Post tagline is democracy dies in darkness. Everything dies in darkness. So I just think it's important to be asking questions about stuff. I, I just think it's important not to trust anyone <laughs> that things are happening the way you think that they are. And I wish I had a staff of like 15 people to, you know, I don't know if there's ever going to be the need for that, but I would love, I have just a long list of things I would like to talk about and expose. Well, there is a, there's definitely a book. And I know you and I, um, when you interviewed me for your podcast, um, we talked about um, my life in big pharma, which uh, yes. preceded, preceded my founding, uh, my small pharma company, and then my consumer health company. And it is, um, there's, there is a lot that can be communicated about how the, the inner workings, who's making the decisions you know, and for those of you that are listening, I've had a lot of great male mentors, but I will tell you that when I worked uh, in the multinational companies, most of every position was male dominated and men were largely making decisions about women and women's health care or weren't making decisions about women and women's health care because we weren't important enough, even though we represent more than half the world's population. And actually the numbers are even greater um, as we age, because we know that at least up until now, that may be changing, that women, as we age, we represent a disproportionate percentage of the population, but they weren't paying attention to the demographic. We mm -hmm. were just relegated to, okay, well, you know, she is going to have dry vagina and she's going to have hot flashes and she's going to, her skin is going to look pretty awful. Mm. So it was all negative, not liberating, yeah. not a revolution. It was all negative because he had a bunch of guys making those decisions. So there's definitely a book. You mentioned looking at who's supporting these studies. And I was, if you, if you, if you're listening to this and you um, see a study referenced anywhere, if you go to PubMed and look that up, just put it in PubMed, P-U-B med pub as in like a bar, PubMed, look it up. And then look for the sponsor of the study. Oftentimes, you'll see at the very bottom of an article, and that will give you the, an indication as to who these investigators are working with, working for, whether they have 
stock options, whether there are grants, whether there is remuneration. And that ought to be um, an area where you may scratch your head, or raise your eyebrow, and then look for the next study. You mentioned that the way in which studies are, are um, conducted, and we know that there are, there are things called inclusion and exclusion criteria. They're always mm -hmm. part of a study. So it's inclusion means who are you going to include in a study? And who are you going to exclude? Because obviously there are certain, in our case, women that won't be able to be part of this study because they bear certain risk factors. And there are certain women that you want included in these studies because they match up nicely with whatever condition you may be researching. And that's that's appropriate because you don't want to ex unfairly expose individuals to risk. And you also want to have the best possible chance of success. Mm -hmm. However, um, what you need to understand is once these drugs get approved, then the decision comes down to your practitioner and you as to whether you are willing to accept what this particular product, whether it's prescription or consumer, can offer to you, weighing mm -hmm. the risks and the benefits and understanding the way that these studies may have been conducted. Uh, depression trials are notorious for enrolling thousands and thousands of subjects so they can show statistical significance. And historically, um, depression drugs were studied in largely male-based populations. And that's something that we all need to be paying attention to because in general, the way the drugs have been developed, um, they have not included the, um, a matchup of the population um, that suffers from the condition or disorder. So one needs to, you know, one needs to be one's own advocate. And I think that that's where someone like you comes in, ask these questions. That's where your style of journalism is so exciting. Because you're, <laughs> you're asking these questions. I think people yeah. don't always realize where the will to do the actual research is coming from and the money to do the actual research that's coming from. And I'm not striving what's being studied. So yeah, I'm all for studies too and, and clinical evidence, but I feel like in a way, like a lot of the system is kind of rigged, you know, like um, <laughs> I just feel like pretending that it's 20 years ago or something when we didn't have all, maybe all of this level of influence. So I, that's why I just think it's so important to be just very skeptical about everything. And that's irritating to a lot of people, including the people who don't want you to be skeptical. <laughs> we need we need to be ourselves. We need to be our own advocate and our best advocate. And we do need to um, we do need to challenge things. I agree with you that. 20 years ago, the notion of integrative medicine and looking at the combination of Eastern and Western medicine was really not high, not very popular. And it has come into its own and major teaching institutions across the United States, at least, and probably throughout the world. Uh, but, but even in the United States where Western medicine is, you know, the, the big deal um, has adapted to integrative medicine and looking at ways in which Eastern medicine can be complementary. And so you have um, Arizona and you have the University of Maryland and you have many others um, and other institutions who have really opened up institutes of integrative medicine, looking at what you just described. 
which are natural supplements, um, ingredients in, in our food supply. Um, I look at one, there's an ingredient called L-theanine and L-theanine mm. is a component in green tea. And there is a substantial amount of evidence that suggests that L-theanine can, can actually help you with mood and it can mm. help you with rest. And it is a natural ingredient in green tea. Now, <clears throat> if you're drinking green tea, you're probably getting some of the L-theanine, but in supplement form, it actually is more potent. So taking those supplements and drinking your green tea is probably a good thing, but you're not going to hear about this because you're not going to get a major um, institution to sponsor a large, well-controlled clinical, randomized clinical trial. But, there, but if you read the literature and you, you know, study what's been going on in Asia, you will understand that there are significant benefits. We look at ashwagandha. It's another mm -hmm. one, right? Yeah. So yeah. A lot of different, there are a lot of different supplements that uh, we should be taking a hard look at. Again, being mindful that all of these things still have their own side effects and you, know, you should consult with a healthcare practitioner if you have underlying health issues, but you should consult with your healthcare practitioner because if you're using prescription products, um, whether they are, um, whether they're for your menopause symptoms or for some other problem or condition, um, they, they will interact, they could interact. So it's important yes. to know what that looks like. But yeah. it's, it is absolutely the case that um, these are, this is information that needs to be shared. This is part of what Hot Flash Incorporated was focused to pursue, what you're focused to pursue. Yeah. And I, one thing I, I say a lot, I think that it's great that there's awareness and more and more people are finding out about perimenopause, but it's not all, it's not all perimenopause. You can't blame everything on perimenopause. And I'm starting to feel like, you know, why do we go through this transition at all? Like, why does this happen? And, you know, there's some theories like the grandmother hypothesis that sort of like, if we're not able to bear children, then we'll be more helpful in raising the other children. And I think that's a beautiful theory because it makes me feel sort of, I haven't had children, but it just makes me feel like, you know, you, you're really useful. You're, you're just really useful in a lot of ways because you're so wise and you've been through so much, no matter what, whether you're taking kids, take care of kids or not. But to... <sighs> To say that everything that's happening at this time is all perimenopause and menopause is you're doing yourself a real disservice. I feel that one of the reasons that this transition exists is to is, is one big signal of like, hey, a signal and a light on everything you've been doing that doesn't work for you anymore. Because we've all adopted all these habits up until now of things that we've been doing that don't work for us. You know, like just for one example, I have a ton of them, but like, for one example is I had IBS like my whole life. It was just told I have IBS, I have IBS. So I lived in a state of like, you know, feeling not well a lot of the time, feeling very like weak and tired, but just going, drinking coffee, doing whatever, not paying attention to how things weren't really going well. And that's obviously done me a dis, how you can't live like that for 20 years, right? When you're not having like proper elimination or whatever, it's just not good for you. It's causing problems for your body. I should have had that, but you know, when you go to the doctor and he says, oh, it's your IBS and that's it. And so I, you know, I developed 
stronger gut issues. Like I got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and I just had it, I've just been investigating all of this. And my gastroenterologist said, I think you might've had Crohn's. Like, I think, you know, I think you might be burning it. Like this is something that he's, I'm working with him to really like take supplements and get my gut working because if I don't, I, I don't know how much, you know, it causes problems all through your system. You can't, you can't, you can't run on like a backup system for 20 years, which is basically say what I've been doing. And then also drink too much alcohol and, you know, do, you know, not pay attention to your emotions and stuff them down and deny them. And like all of these things just create dysfunction. And so I feel like menopause is the big signal. And then within it, I'm so curious because it seems to me like many symptoms are little signals and not so little signals. For example, we know hot flashes get worse or women have hot flashes when a stressful event happens. And I know this myself, like I've, since I've read that study, I've started to pay attention to this and realize when I'm talking to someone and I'm having a hot flash or I'm in a meeting and it's a bit tense. And I think maybe that's a signal to point out to you the things that you've found stressful that you haven't been paying any attention to. And maybe you can do something about them and hot flashes. If they're severe and frequent, um, are a sign that of future cardiovascular problems that may have already started and that you should get checked out. That's what a great push, you know, brain fog that gets us thinking about our brain health with all the dementia risks. Um, lately I've been running a lot about frozen shoulder cause I'm so obsessed with it because I'm hearing from all over the world of, Oh, it's thyroid, it's metabolic issues. It's diabetes, it's grief, it's stress. Like it's, it, it's inactivity. Frozen shoulder is a great signal symptom. Like if you just, if your shoulder just stops working, <laughs> that doesn't just happen. And of course, you know, depending on who you go to, no one really knows how to treat it. But so I just feel like this time of life, people don't want to change. We don't want to change. We want to just keep doing what we've always done, but we can't because hopefully we've got 30, 40, whatever years left to live. So this is a time when you sort of have to change everything. And so that's why I get sort of annoyed when I just see so many people blaming it on perimenopause. And I don't think it's that funny when I see people making TikToks, you know, where they're splashing water on themselves and wearing a wet shirt and <laughs> like pretending they have hot flashes. Cause I'm like, I think maybe you should be seeing a cardiologist because if your hot flashes are so bad that you're waking up drenched like that, then it's a sign of, right? Like I just, I, I just, it's not at all perimenopause and, and, and it's kind of almost swung that now more people know that it's happening. You can just blame it on the perimenopause. I thought I had terrible bloating and fatigue and brain fog and terrible mood issues. And this went on for nine months and it turned out I had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which was wreaking havoc. It's like creating toxins in my gut. It was giving me fatty liver. Like it was a big problem. And I would have told you that I didn't, you know, I, I thought I was in the depths of perimenopause. It bothers me a lot that people aren't looking deeper now. So I, I, it's very hard to sell my message. You know what I mean? Because it's not like go on HRT or do things naturally, like the simplistic way of social media. I'm just like, it's not simple. <laughs> so we, we have, we women have um, a tendency. We, we've been in the go, go, go phase of life for probably ever since we got out of undergrad or graduate school or high school or wherever, depending upon you know what that milestone looks like. But for several decades, right? A couple decades, go, go, yeah. go, go, go. Maybe you went to a gynecologist, but maybe didn't pay so much attention to endocrinologists to look at some of the metabolic issues or some of the things that you just described. 
And then we have this epiphany because we reach this point in our life and all of a sudden there's a convergence of all these different kinds of crazy symptoms, whether it's you're starting to have a hot flash or, you know, my case, I never, I never had to wear glasses. Now all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm like wearing glasses all the time. I can't even see the screen without my glasses. I'm like, oh yeah. My eyes feel like they have sandpaper in them. Well, guess what? I have dry eye, probably have cataracts, right? So now all of a sudden you're seeing, I'm seeing the ophthalmologist because I have, you know, I have dry eye and it's really bugging me. And then I have some cataracts here and I never worried about that sort of stuff. I just go see an optometrist, you know, because I, I needed reading glasses at some point, but big deal, you know, I didn't even have my my eyes dilated. I was like, no, no, I don't need them dilated. Just give me something to help me, you know, read, you know, the the fine contracts. And so we tend to get to that point where all of a sudden there is a convergence of different symptoms. And you're right. You can't blame all of it on menopause. So it's just our body. We've, we've, you know, been so busy paying attention to our kids or our careers or our parents or a combination of all of the above. Now we're all of a sudden, okay, great. If you have kids, kids are raised, or maybe you have some, you know, spare kids that you're raising, even if they're not your own, right? They could be nieces, nephews, you know, whomever. Um, And, you know, sadly our parents pass. And so they're, you know, so now it's all about you. (laughs) That's why we do love Mia Vita. It's about my life. Love it. So pay attention to Mia Vita, my life, because it's the best of your life. So the best of your Mm -hmm. life is right now when you can look, yeah, take a look back, do an inventory. And, you know, if Uh your eyes are failing, you could take care of those eyes, take care of that gut. So you're right. It's not only perimenopause. It's really a, it's really an accumulation of all the things that we sort of pushed to the back of the, you know, the. These are in the recesses because all these other things took precedence, our careers, our kids, our parents, all of the above. And now we finally have that liberation. So this this is the time of your life. It's the best time of your life. And that's why I hate it when people stigmatize menopause being doom and gloom because it's not all doom and gloom. It's about seizing control of your life. Oh, and just, it's almost like a game once you start addressing things, you know, like for me, I've been addressing things for years now, physically and emotionally and emotionally is the most fun because you're just like, oh, wait, you know, I've never gotten married. And I would have told you I've had long relationships and lots of love, but I would have said, oh, you know, I've been kind of unlucky in that regard. And nope, a couple of years ago, I started doing some work and taking courses and I've been contributing the whole time. I have some fear and self-esteem issues that have, I didn't show up in relationships. So I've had the awesome opportunity in the last couple of years to practice that in dating and relationships, body image. I mean, into up to 48, I, I had a body image issue. I was a chubby kid and I gained weight a couple of times in my life. And it was only through uh, a girl I worked with here in Abu Dhabi who became a body body positivity influencer and, and, and showed all the angles through following her. I, I just grew to like my body. Like now I'm the person who goes to the, the beach and I wear a bathing suit and I feel good. Like, and it's weird. Cause I'll still check myself. Like I don't compare my body to other people. 
I don't, I think it looks pretty good for my age. You know, I feel I was, I was on a podcast last week with a young guy and I was saying, I don't know how to explain to you how I feel more attractive and better about myself now than I did at 30. Cause I can see the pictures and I can see what I look like, but it doesn't matter if you don't feel it. And these are things, you know, like my ability to be honest with my friends and have a smaller circle and not need to have this massive group. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's so all encompassing and it's so fun because if we're not going to do it now, when, like, when's it going to happen? Absolutely. These are all, these are all great topics that our listeners can learn about by studying uh, the writings of Anne-Marie McQueen and checking out Hot Flash Incorporated. Anne-Marie, it is always a pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you. Um, Now, as my guest, it was wonderful to be your guest on your podcast. So I want to thank you uh, for sharing some of these insightful musings about your own life and about your journey to Hot Flash Incorporated. We are so excited for what you are doing, for what you continue to do. And we want to encourage everyone to check out your website. Maybe you'd like to share that with our listeners and viewers. It's Hot Flash Inc. INC and it's a website. I have a Substack newsletter. Uh, I have blogs on my website and it's across social media, uh, Twitter, TikTok, link, uh, t- Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and soon Pinterest and soon YouTube but not quite yet. And the podcast is everywhere. It's hot flash ink as well. Right. That's where it is. I'd love midlife and menopause. That's what we're talking about. Midlife and menopause, <laughs> the best time of your yeah. life. And best. don't forget, don't forget to love Mia Vita. This is Jerry DiPiano. And I am signing off with my guest, Anne-Marie McQueen. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. And We will speak to you soon, Anne-Marie. We are not about to make this the last time we chat. Thank you once again. Thank you, listeners and viewers. Thank you. 